personal prayers. Um, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Exodus chapter 1. We embark on another expedition, another exposition through another book of Scripture this morning. And it's important that we take note of the shift we are making from Ephesians, or at least the shift that I am making from Ephesians, for we have already made this shift through Brad's preaching, and I'm so thankful for that. But I'll remind us the shift that we have made through that, and we will be continuing to make through Exodus, because we are leaving the New Testament and entering into the Old. We leave Paul and re-meet Moses. We leave the ancient Mediterranean and enter the ancient Middle East. We leave epistles and we enter into narrative. We will also, uh, and, and we will, as to the redemptive timeline, leave the substance and enter back into the shadow and type of the old covenant. It is, it is on reflecting on this, or it is reflecting on this, that I was actually taken back to my childhood summer days and to the phrase previously on all, previously on all my children. What passed the time on some summer late mornings with my mother was watching the soap opera All My Children. It may come a surprise to you that I know Erica and Edward and Jackson and that's where my memory fades me, and I was unwilling to Google it, so that's where it'll be. But every, as you are well aware that soap operas, being the dramas they are, and don't go back and watch them, they're nothing worth watching, but the dramas that they are required that at the beginning, almost at the beginning of every episode, it began with previously on and fill in the show. They wanted to catch you up on the drama that came before so that when you got into the mix of that episode, which was manifold and twisted, you wouldn't be completely lost as to what was happening. And so they would play clips from the previous episodes. And in this case, it's uh, it, so that the watcher, and in this case, in this case an elementary school age, Nate Perkins would be able to know the details of the past so that they would know how, they, how the present was relevant and so that they wouldn't be lost, as I said. Well, little did I know that those summer days would prove as a preparatory time as well as an illustration for us this morning. For in order to start in on Exodus, we must take some time to highlight what previously has come within God's revelation. It starts in Exodus chapter 1, and these words are really, it's one word in the Hebrew. I'll save you any attempt at my ability to pronounce Hebrew, but the words in your English translation are now these. Now these are translated in, the, in your modern Bible, but uh, in a more literal sense, it's actually and 
these. I can imagine that the translators of the Hebrew thought, let's not begin a book of the Bible with a conjunction, so we'll begin it with what was the inflection or the intended understanding of that word to say, now these, but even then we can sense that there's a continuation being represented there with that word. And so this clearly shows an organic progression of the narrative and underscores that this is a story in development. It utilizes the phrase of the genealogies of Genesis. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, a listing of names and people. And so it unites these books together, Genesis and Exodus. We shouldn't jump into Exodus 1 without some knowledge of Genesis 1 through 50. And we won't go through that two-year experience again that we did so many years ago. But we will take some time to look and see what has the Lord established for us in Genesis that he builds upon in Exodus this morning. So follow along as I read for us Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again. O oh Lord, we come before you this morning after the reading of your word, and we seek your help as we attend to this means of grace that you've given us to nourish our souls. So Lord, I pray that your word would come forth, that your truth would be established. Lord, may my tongue be bridled to speak your truth this morning so that your people may be blessed by it in your spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of such things in Christ our Lord. It's in, whom, it's in whom, whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this book of Exodus is a testament to our faithful Lord. I think that's something that we're going to see throughout this whole time in Exodus that we spend, is we're going to see one thing about God at the very least. We'll see many things about God, but the one thing that will be over and over established is that He is a faithful God. And He grants to us a sufficient insight into His ways, His character, his intentions, and his changeless faithfulness so that however dark the day, we can live by faith and be sustained by hope. However dark the day may be, we can live by faith and be sustained by hope because of the faithfulness of God. We live in dark days, do we not? 
we experience dark times, do we not? We consider this world and its passing and fading light, and we think we will go with it. We're going to go with the fading of this nation. We're going to go with the fading of our age. We're going to go with the fading of our beauty, the fading of our wealth, everything. We'll go with it. And maybe that will be true for our temporal possessions, but it can never be true for our eternal inheritance. For we serve a faithful, unchanging God. And we will see that as we enter into this book of Exodus over and over again. And we can't see that unless we establish some things first. The, the first thing we need to establish is, is we need to establish our approach to the book. We need to establish that as we approach Exodus, we will approach it in a distinctly Christian way. We don't take off our Christian hats or our Christian knowledge and empty ourselves and come to Exodus and say, okay, Lord, I don't know anything else. Teach me something from Exodus. No, we come with the full knowledge of Christ come back to Exodus, and what we see, just like the center or just like a map, is that if you open up to one page of it, you can keep opening it and opening it and opening it to greater and greater discoveries. And so we're going to talk first about our approach to Exodus. Second, we're going to look at Abraham. We can't come to Exodus unless we talk about Abraham, for it is Father Abraham in whom the Israelites are birthed out of. It's by his covenant that we will see that the Mosaic covenant rests upon and yet does not fulfill fully the promises of Abraham. And we get the joy of seeing that from our perspective in redemptive history, that it is Christ our Lord and the new covenant. We're also going to see uh, something as it relates to these first seven verses as we enter into Exodus of anticipation we have to see what is anticipated in Genesis that happens in Exodus and continues on as we receive the joy and blessings of it in the new covenant. So we're going to see it. We're going to go. We're going to look at our approach. We're going to look at Abraham and we're going to look at anticipation. We must establish our approach first. It's important that we establish or really reestablish our approach to the Old Testament. At least two texts are important to establish this. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, and Luke 24, 22 through 27. Those are just two. There are other passages we could go to in reference, but for time purposes this morning, we're just going to look at two. You don't have to turn there. I'll read for us. 1 Peter 1, verse 10 through 12. As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
It's important that we see this passage out of Peter and we don't just gloss over it and we certainly don't constrict it to, to uh, just very uh, atomistic predictions or messianic predictions, but we see it as an uh, overall overlay of what is taught in the Old Testament scriptures. And what is taught in the Old Testament scriptures are the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. We will approach Exodus in such a way. We will look for Christ. We will look for the sufferings of Christ pictured in the Israelites, in the leaders of the Israelites, in the ordinances of the Old Covenant, in the establishment of the tabernacle and all its furnishings. And we, with assured hope of 1 Peter, the word of God, written by holy men, holy men carried along by the Holy Spirit, we will assuredly find it. And it will not be fabricated, but it will be intended by the divine author himself. Luke 24, 25 through 27. Where did Peter learn such a thing? We, we must understand that the apostles wrote not out of... Um, Spur of the moment, hey, I've got a good idea. Let's go back to the Old Testament and let's add significance to it so that it can be applicable to our new covenant uh, circumstances. No, the apostles learned from none other than Christ himself. How do we know this? Well, he, Christ testifies to this at the very least, in Luke 24, beginning, beginning in 25, and Christ said to them, these are uh, uh, the road to Emmaus, it's the story of the road to Emmaus, these disciples are walking along and they're downtrodden and they, they thought Christ was the one to come and defeat Rome and, and establish an earthly kingdom, and he's walking with them and he finally tells them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Our Lord Jesus had a hermeneutic when he came to scripture. He looked and inquired in the Old Covenant to understand his sufferings and subsequent glories. We don't have time at the moment to explore the idea that Christ himself learned in his humanity how to interpret Scripture. But we can affirm that he interpreted Scripture and he interpreted Scripture, the method... Uh, of interpreting scripture or his hermeneutic demonstrates as well as in John 5 that the scriptures find their scope in Christ Jesus. The idea that uh, Christ comes on the scene and starts preaching uh, new ideas is only born in the minds of those that opposed him. For those that the Lord was drawing to the Son, or to himself through the Son, the Lord in whom he had already granted faith, those 
joyously accepted the words of Christ. And they didn't just accept them uh, straight away as, as if uh, he was saying something new idea or coming up with a new idea, but they accepted them because they were consistent with the word of God that he had given in prior epochs in the Old Testament. Pastor Barcelos says this, the entire New Testament is based on Jesus's view of himself in relation to the Old Testament. The sinless son of God saw the Old Testament as that which pointed to him. The authors of the books of the New Testament not only agreed with this assessment, they wrote in light of it. And since the writings of the New Testament are inspired documents, this is also God's view of Jesus and the Old Testament. In other words, the New Testament is the infallible interpretation of Jesus in relation to the, to the Old Testament. This is no small matter. Indeed, Jesus understood the Old Testament to be the word of God written, and he saw it as pointing to him. His view of the Old Testament became the view of the writers of the New Testament. It seems to follow that Christian interpreters ought to follow the lead of Jesus and the authors of the New Testament. So we will find Christ not just under every rock, but, we will but he will reveal himself to be the rock, the one whom living waters are supplied. He is also the cleft of the rock in whom we are able to abide and be with God. He will, uh, we will find him to be a greater Moses. We will find him to be the true Israel. We will find him to be Pharaoh's king, the Paschal Lamb the bronze serpent, the lawgiver and the law keeper, the angel of the Lord, the great high priest, the true ark and the true tabernacle among many other things. And we do this not to the chagrin and we do this not to overlook the Israelites themselves and what they uh, experienced in Egypt and through the Exodus and then their time at Sinai. We do it through them not over them, because it is their real historical experience that the Lord has ordained for our instruction and our benefit. Such that the writer to the Hebrews can say that when we will get there and, and we'll revisit this, but when Moses turns his back on Egypt, the writer to the Hebrews says, he sought the reproach, he thought the reproach of Christ was greater than the riches of Egypt. God's word is infallible. And when his word interprets his word, it is an infallible interpretation of his infallible word. And we do well to take heed. And so this represents our approach to scripture. We must come to Exodus with this knowledge so that we can 
move into it with confident hope and encouragement that we're just not going to learn the history of the Jewish people, but we're going to learn the prophecy of Christ and his sufferings and subsequent glories. And so we may understand in a greater way the benefits that we receive from such sufferings and glories. This uh, comes by way of revelation and, lar- and, and by a framework and system. It comes by way of covenant. And so we can't approach Exodus without a prior understanding and a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant. And so the three patch- passages that describe the Abrahamic covenant do so progressively. We can turn well, with our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. And we do this not ignoring Genesis 1 through 3, where we have the covenant of works and the Lord working through that covenant, where the fall of man takes place and and in Adam we all fall. And then the promise of the redemption through the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And he continues on that redemption here through the lineage of here Abram and eventually who will become Abraham. The building, they build upon one another these passages, creating a collective whole. There's not two covenants. There's one covenant with Abraham. There are certainly not three covenants, but there is only one covenant, and they come to Abraham progressively. And so it begins in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, as the covenantal beginnings. Then in Genesis 15, there's a covenantal ceremony. And then in Genesis 17, 1 through 14, there's covenantal commitments. And so in the covenantal beginnings in Genesis 12, in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Abram, and then the subsequent yous establish Abraham as the federal head of this covenant that it will be through Abraham the blessings of this covenant will come to the covenant people of Abraham. In verse 2, it says that he will make a great nation and he will bless and make his name great. And so you shall be a blessing. The first part of the Abrahamic covenant opens with God's commitment to Abram. Unconditional commitment to Abram. Gracious commitment to Abraham. Abram. Why is that important? Because we're going to find, or we're not going to find, but we know that Abraham fails to keep the, God's moral law perfectly and perpetually. He fails to keep himself pure. He fails in many ways, and we, and we follow his lineage, and we find that uh, throughout his descendants. But what they have in common is God's commitment as a faithful and sovereign God to bless Abraham, Abraham as a great nation, to make his name great, that he would be a blessing. And that And then we find in verse 3, the connection through which Abraham's covenant 
carries on the promise of Genesis 3.15, carries on the promises of the new covenant. So Abraham's covenant promises the new covenant. In verse 3 of 12, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Our confession says uh, that this is the further steps. It reveals the covenant of grace as the plan of salvation. The mystery of Christ will unfold in this place among this people. Abraham, by God's grace, is granted to be the father of our Lord according to the flesh. He's also granted to be our father according to faith. For it is the faith of Abraham that we are supposed to emulate. For Abraham is said to have heard the gospel and believed. In chapter 15, we move ahead from covenant beginnings to covenant ceremony. Genesis 15 in verse 5, and he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Further development of the covenant we find here in verses 9 through 21, there's a covenant ceremony whereby God swore an oath to Abraham that these promises would be fulfilled. How does God promise it by walking through the divided pieces by walking through the animals himself it wasn't abraham that the that walked through it with god it was god alone so god swears that he will accomplish all that he promises to do in verse 11 we see that this would serve as a picture of the Abrahamic covenant's role within the Mosaic covenant. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, the cut birds, the cut uh, heifers, the, these things were cut in two. And so Abraham was watching the birds of prey come down upon the carcasses and he would run and drive them away. Abraham's covenant will delay God's judgment on the people of Israel until God fulfills his promises in it. That's what's pictured here in verse 11, that it will be by the covenant with Abraham that the birds of prey, which is a sign of God's judgment on his people, would be stayed until he's fulfilled all he has promised to Abraham. We see this in, uh, in a uh, different way in Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, the Lord is talking about the blessings that will come to obedience to, to the Mosaic Covenant. We, we're reading that now, and it's the second law given right before they take possession of the land. And so they give them a law with this emphasis upon living in the land. And so in Deuteronomy 28, they said, it, it, God says, if you follow these things, I will bless you. And in verse 25, it says, if you disobey or in, in disobeying, in verse 25, it says, The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one, away, one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food 
to all birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. See, the Lord is already anticipating here that he will fulfill his promises to Abraham. I will give you this land. I will drive the people out before you. But if you disobey me, after I have fulfilled it, after Abraham's covenant according to the temporal blessings of it is fulfilled, the Lord will then remove them for their disobedience. And we get to see the unfolding of that as Brad preaches through Ezra. But here we're going to see the beginning of that in Exodus. And certainly we see the seed of that here in Genesis 15. Turn with me to Psalm 105. 105 is an excellent psalm as it relates to understanding the history of, of Israel. The history of Israel up until uh, the giving of the land, the, the conquering of the land. Specifically in verses 8 through 14, it, it references where, where we're at. It says, He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance, when they were only a few men in number, very few and strangers in it. And they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He permitted no man to oppress them, and he provoked kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. And he called for a famine in the land, and then it gets into Joseph going on ahead of his brothers. Why? To preserve the people of Israel. And then it gets into the Exodus. And it talks about Moses and the plagues. But I want to draw your attention to verse 14. He said, the Lord said, He permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. And then in verse 42, we see that culmination, for he remembered his holy word with Abraham, his servant. We see the role of the Abrahamic covenant uh, within the all the epoch of the Old Testament, but specifically within the Mosaic covenant, that it was a preserving covenant. It was a covenant by which the Lord promised to accomplish such things, and the Lord was going to be faithful to his promises. In Exodus 2.24, it says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham when they cried out to him, when they were oppressed by the Egyptians. So we have covenant beginnings. We see the, the covenant, covenantal ceremonies, but then we find that there is covenantal commitments. Covenantal commitments in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17, in these covenantal commitments, we find that the Lord uh, promises to do these things and yet there would be an individual component to the Abrahamic covenant. In verse 6, it says that I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. And so we see he expands the covenant again to include kings and a royal line. 
And then in verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. He expands the covenant to include a positive law of obedience. The primary purpose is to mark the boundaries of the people of this covenant so that those would know who would be uh, able to receive the Abrahamic covenant. This established the Abrahamic covenant as to its participants, as a covenant that would be based upon works. The work here, or the, the positive law of circumcision. And we see that because the word used in verse 9, this idea of keep, is the same verb used in Genesis 2.15, where Adam was commissioned to work and keep the garden. If Adam disobeyed the Lord in the working and keeping of the garden, he would no longer be privy to the benefits of that covenant. So it is with those descended of Abraham, even proselytes, they either women had to marry a Jewish man or an Abraham, Abraham, uh, one of Abraham's descendants, or a male would have to take the sign of circumcision. And we know that there are failings and keepings of that. We'll see that even Moses himself doesn't keep that covenant until his wife draws his attention to it. But what we must see is that God will keep all of his promises and fulfill all of his commitments. But any and all the lack of enjoyment and fulfillment individually would stem from the unfaithfulness and disobedience of the covenant people. And so the Abrahamic covenant acts as the conditional forerunner to and preserver of the Mosaic covenant. We, we see this because we, we have to understand that as we enter into Exodus 1, and there's a reference to Israel, that Israel is the people, is the nation whom that would be birthed from Abraham through this covenant. And so this is the people that will be preserved in Egypt, in the wilderness, at Sinai, in the land, in exile, until God would fulfill all his promises that he promised Abraham. We recognize also that it is within the context of Exodus that God had told Abraham in Genesis 15 that he would send his people away into slavery. This is important to understand because when we get, when we understand our approach and we understand Abraham, now we're going to see expectation here because what does he, what does he see is that he, we see is that God says, I will bring you out of slavery and bring you in to this land. God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed for a hundred years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. One commentator says, it would indeed have been nice if Israel would have awaited its inheritance and security and prosperity. That was not the way it worked out. And without a Bible to teach us with 
what other view could we take but this? With the Bible, however, the idea that history is simply the lucky or unlucky spin of the will is wheel is ruled out. It is also first and foremost his story. And what happened in Israel's case was all deliberate and part of a greater plan. We recognize that we live in dark days as we talked about earlier. We, we experience dark times in our own life and even in our spiritual life. We must root ourselves here in Exodus as we are rooted in Christ so that the light of the dawn of a faithful God can shine upon our hearts and give us hope to endure whatever circumstances and whatever portion or part or uh, function of a nation the Lord brings us in that is part of a greater plan and that it's it, the greater plan is the glory of Christ in his church in the expansion of his kingdom. Joseph catches on to this in Genesis 50, verses 22 through 26. Joseph holds by faith the promise of the Lord to bring Israel out of Egypt. What does it say in Genesis 50, in verse... uh, in verse 22. That's probably the only page over. It says, Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of, of Mechur, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph bade the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the, at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt temporarily he was placed there hebrews tells us by faith joseph when he was dying made mention of the exodus of the sons of israel and gave orders concerning his bones joseph anticipated the faithfulness of god matter of fact even all of the old testament anticipates the new Augustine says that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. So we use all of God's revelation to show us the sufferings and subsequent glories of Christ that we have by faith and union with him. Moiter says that Egypt, the Egyptian on the Egyptian captivity and God's sovereignty, he says this is the mystery of the divine government of history whether on a national, domestic, or individual level. The great and loving God is in control. And because he is truly sovereign, he works out his purposes in his way, not ours. He offers no explanations, but grants his people a sufficient insight into his ways, his character, his intentions, and his changeless faithfulness, so that however dark the day, they can live by faith and be sustained by hope. 
Brothers and sisters, we must anticipate the Lord's faithfulness in our lives. Not to restore us temporal blessings, whether it be health, or whether it be wealth, or, or whatever other things are of this age that the Lord, we would think the Lord would be faithful to restore to us. No, we serve a God who is faithful to his purposes, to his design, and to his plan. And he offers to us his word, especially in the Old Testament, as a testimony to his faithfulness, so that us here in the New Covenant who are living the history of God's redemptive plan, can with hope engage in daily battle against sin and daily battle against the, our own failings so that we would look to ourselves and, and though we would find faithlessness in our actions and interactions, we would look to Christ and find faithfulness. And so the book of Exodus is a testament to our faithful Lord. He grants to us a sufficient insight into his ways, his character, his intentions, and his changeless faithfulness so that however dark the day, we can live by faith and be sustained by hope. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning for your word. We thank you that in it we find you revealed to us as a faithful Lord, as the one who is the sovereign of history. Grow our faith, Lord, to cling to Christ more every day. That the cares of this world would fade in the presence of your glorious grace. We will do this imperfectly. And yet in Christ, Lord, you receive it as it is in Christ. And so it's acceptable to you. We thank you and give you praise. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.